Well, good morning, College Park. The scripture reading will be from the 139th Psalm. Psalm 139. It reads, to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are well acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven... You're there. If I make my bed and Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell into the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, shall your hand lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be as night, well, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, the darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. That is the word of the Lord. (laughs) To which I would say thanks be to God. And some might say that as well in the tradition. So... This week is one of my favorite weeks of the year. Maybe it is my favorite week of the year. I can't think of a week that's more favorite for me in the year because this is the week of things. So everybody knew that. I'm sure it's your favorite week, at least many of you it is. Based on registration, we've had a ton of people register. Our Think weekend is coming up on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Dr. Carson from Trinity, one of my favorite theologians and that's true of many of us, will be here speaking to us and magnifying God. And so it's a weekend that I and many of us have been praying for and looking forward to. And so we're taking a little diversion out of Romans. And I'm glad for that because Romans 9 comes next. And if you know anything about Romans 9, I'm glad Mark's doing Romans 9. It'll it'll be good for him. Um, And good for us. I love Romans 9. Um, And and so I'm going to move off. And I want to talk this week about thinking. I want to think about the way we think since think is coming up. And and I want to read to you a quote from a 19th century pastor when he was 20 years old 
And in the introduction to one of his sermons, he said this, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the works, the doings, the existence of the great God whom he calls father. And that introduced a sermon, and I wish I could have heard the whole sermon, because the fact is this, I don't know what it is that you're enamored with thinking about. I can think of a lot of things that are fun to think about, but there's no thought that will ever enter your thought capacity that is going to be any more delightful, any more wonderful, any more exalted, any more helpful to your soul than the thought of God. (laughs) Now, that sounds right in a Christian church, doesn't it? The challenge of this sermon for me is going to come at the end because then I'm going to ask myself this question. So how much do I think about God? Because my temptation and tendency in this world, in this body of flesh, is to think more about me than I think about God. And God created me to think so much more about him than I think about me. And I'll better think about me when I think rightly about him. You followed all that, right? (laughs) Because he's God and I'm not. And I'm glad he's God, and I don't want him to be too much like me. I want him to be everything that he is to be in his glory. And so I I love the 139th Psalm. When I was in fourth grade, just a few years ago, I was in a Christian school, and I was forced to memorize the 139th Psalm, which for lo these many years has been an incredible ministry to my heart and to my soul. And I wish I had like five hours to exposit this text that I don't. Because I'll tell you this. You'll never memorize any portion of scripture more delightful than maybe Romans 8. And I think the Old Testament kind of equivalent is the 139th Psalm. And you'll find an incredible comfort for your soul in any aspect of life. You'll find yourself focusing and thinking more about God than you do the circumstances of life or the reality of your own life. This Psalm does like other Psalms do, but in my mind, it does it as well as any. And it exalts the glory of God. And I love that. So we're going to look at this psalm. I divided, it's actually divided into four sections. There are four sections of six verses each. Good Hebrew poets were very intentional when they put their poetry together. And David was an excellent Hebrew poet. And he had four sections. And I'm going to be a not-so-excellent American expositor. And I'm going to have three points because that's what sermons do. You know, (laughs) they have three points. So I'm going to take the first two attributes, I'm going to put them together, and I want us to look at the glory of God from these three angles that that David gives to us, and, and we're going to see God exalted in a way that I hope just warms your heart and challenges your soul today like it's supposed to when you come and gather with the people of God. So of the three realities of God, the first, it's kind of an attribute or a characteristic, is in the first 12 verses, and it is this, and here's the way I've, I've, I've described it, hopefully so it'll be memorable, that God is high. He's high. So, so the bigger word for high is the multisyllabic word, meaning there's several syllables, is that he's transcendent. That God is not like you and me. He's transcendent. He's above us. He's not just above us as if to say, well, you know, I can lift X amount of pounds and God can lift like 10 pounds more than me or take all the people and all the weight that anybody's ever lifted and God could still lift 20 pounds more than them. The fact is this. God's power is limitless. 
less. It's not just bigger and better than me. It's in a whole other world than me. That's who God is. And God's excellence and God's glory is best manifested when he's made much of. And then in comparison to the much of of God, I understand who I am. Now, the beauty of this psalm, and if you read through it, is it's, it, it's like, let's push God. You can't push God too high. It's like, well, wait a minute, he's too high. But the beauty of the psalm is if you look in virtually every verse, there's a first person personal pronoun, meaning I, me, mine, that this incredibly transcendent high God cares about you and me. Isn't, isn't that the beauty of the scriptures? And don't make God lower so that you can better understand or you can better access him. Let him be high because the fact is he's coming down to you. (laughs) That blows my mind. So in the first 12 verses, look at the excellency of a transcendent God. And watch how David starts in verse 1. He says, oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. And in my translation, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And it should be that in yours unless you have a Hebrew text. And then if you do, you ought to be up here preaching. (laughs) And when it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it translates what we think. uh, The pronunciation would probably be Yahweh. Some of you have heard that before. It's the self-existent God. It's the I am of Exodus. It's the God who enters in covenant relationship with with, with God's people. It's the God who is personally invested in his people. It's a personal name for God. It's not just the generic name God. It's what the Jews would look up in their God and they would say, you've got gods, they're Baals, they're whatever. Our God is Yahweh. That's his name. And he's personally related to us. And, and some of the transcribers in the scripts of the Hebrew text, uh, even after the time of Christ, they had a rule that when you came to the name Yahweh, you were not allowed to pronounce it. And, and so they inserted another Hebrew word, the word Adonai. And some of you have heard of Adonai, maybe in a song you've sung. So rather than saying, you couldn't let the divine name be on your tongue or in your lips because it was so holy, so you inserted another name in place of it. Which, which I think is, I don't think you need to go to that extent, but you know what we do need to do? Sometimes we've made God so much like us, so buddy, buddy, you know, that we've lost the transcendence of a holy God who's not like us. And you don't want God to be like you. And so you like David. And by the way, if you look at the Psalms from 138 to 150, and someday, sometime you ought to do that, look at the first verse in each one of them, and you'll see Yahweh, that name is used in every one except one. And the last six are Hallel Yahweh, or praise God, praise God, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. You know how many times you can say that before you've said it too much? Never! (laughs) Praise! So David does that. Oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. There's a Hebrew poetic technique that's used here too that's really obvious, kind of. He starts off with, you search me and you know me. Then you go to the last section, verse 23, and he says, search me, O God, and know me. And it's not accidental that he uses those two verbs, search and know, at the beginning, at the end. And he starts off with a profound statement, God, you search me and you know me. And then he ends it in sort of that theological tension of search me and know me, which 
I'm hoping we're going to get time to go. We will get to the end of the psalm. It's enclosed. And at the very beginning, David's extolling the glory of God. And he says, you've searched me and you know me. Look at verse two. You know, when I sit down, you know, when I rise up and you know everything between my rising up and my next sitting down. That's the point. The point is, you know, you rise up and then you go and then you sit down and then you go and you rise up. And then you go and you sit down and God knows your risings and your sitting downs and everything in between that God is, here's the term, he's omniscient, which means he's all knowing, which means he knows it all, which doesn't mean if there's 600 billion, trillion, jillion, whatever things to know that he knows all 600 billion, trillion. It's that he's limitless in his knowledge. There's no end to what he knows. And the fact is, he not only knows it all, but he knows it, all the possibilities that could have been. He is not like me. And as a matter of fact, the psalmist says, you know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Which could be, God, you're way up there, I'm way down here, but you can still figure me out. I don't think that's it. I think he's saying, before I even think it, you thought it. Or you know I'm going to think it. It, So we dedicated babies this morning. I love babies. Thank you for having babies. Keep having babies. And have them in the church and dedicate them to Yahweh, to the Lord, to Jesus. And raise them up so that they know God like we dedicated to do this morning. And and, and my heart goes out. I know there's some of you ladies out there that would love to have babies. And I pray God will give you a baby. That's what I pray. And for some reason, maybe he doesn't. He knows. He's an all-knowing God. So for those that do have babies or have grandbabies or whatever, you need to be thinking before the baby thinks. And you know what? That's not that hard. Because your little baby's gonna grow up to a point where it's gonna crawl and it's gonna go to a wall. And you know what your baby's gonna wanna do to that wall? Come on! Alright, you need to think like a baby. Well, there's a hole in that wall. I'm gonna stick my finger in that hole. And that hole has the, they're not gonna think through all that. They're just gonna think, why do they wanna stick their finger in the electric socket? Why? I wanna talk to that baby. Why do, and you know what? Whatever the reason is, the fact is they do, and a good parent knows what they're thinking before they even think it, and I'm glad that God knows what I think before I even think it. Before there's, yeah, you know, that, that's a good thing. You're acquainted, or verse three, you search my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. You're the divine, divine GPS. Except not really. Because a GPS has a limited, do you have a GPS with one of those voices on it like, make an immediate U-turn. Because I went the wrong, that's, that seems like all it says. You went the wrong way, turn around, take the left. And I'm like, I'm tired of this. I'm taking a left anyway. Well, we have a God who is very familiar and very omniscient, and he searched out your path. He's acquainted with all of your ways. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So have you ever had a friend that tries to complete your sentences? You know, it's like, I went to the store. Yeah, okay, well, let me speak. Have you ever wondered... If God is really that transcendent and he really knows everything and before you get a chance to get it on your tongue, he already knows it. Have you ever said, so why should I tell him? Why pray? He knows it. Good question. And let me tell you this. If your goal in prayer is to inform an ignorant God 
who doesn't know everything, that's not the God you want to pray to. You want to pray to a God that knows it all and that his desire for you and me. I mean, I would say, God, why do you tell me to pray if you already know? And I think it's because he loves me and he wants me to interact with him and he wants me to engage with him. And it's on a transcendent level, kind of like when I Skype my four and three and two-year-old grandkids And there's a part of me that doesn't care what they did with their little toy. But there's another part of me that can't wait to hear what they did with their little toy. Tell me, what'd you do today? And you know what? I delight in what they did on any given day. And you think God is less that to you? So if in your prayer you think, I'm only going to tell God what he doesn't know, then you will stop praying. If you want to say, I want to know a God who knows everything and cares about me, then you're never going to stop praying. (laughs) Yeah. Verse 5, you hem me in behind him before and lay your hand upon me. I did a little study on that, this hemming in. It's as though you've got this, you've got this figured out. I I think that it would be fair to interpret this as a statement of discipline, that God knows you so well that he knows what you need in life to direct you with his right hand. And sometimes for me, it's a pretty good-sized club because I think I'm pretty good. And God needs to just kind of smack me upside the head and say, and and here's what my prayer would be. God, you know everything. You know what I need, even in discipline, so that you're going to bring me to where you want me to be. And then verse 6 says this, such knowledge is too too wonderful for me. It's high, which is where I got that. I can't attain to it. You're God, you know everything, and while you know everything, and you know everything about me, you still want to have a relationship with me, God? And I, you can't read this psalm without the psalmist David saying, God, you know everything, and you still love me. You still want to engage with me. <laughs> so God's omniscient. He knows everything. The next six verses talk about his omnipresence. Another one of those multisyllabic words just just means everything's in the presence of God. God's everywhere present. And and you can imagine that the all-knowing and all-presence of God kind of overlap. You know, he knows because he's there. And he's eternal, which we could add that. We could add a lot of the excellencies of who God is and all those things he is. And we need to elevate his all-knowing and his all-presence. And watch how the psalmist does it. I, you know, you got to love Hebrew poetry. And I, I'm so glad it translates into English. Because if it didn't, we'd all be in trouble. And here's what David says in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? You know the answer to that question? You don't sit around and debate. So where am I going to go from you? Let me see. Maybe I'll try my inner closet in my computer. I, I can go from your presence. How, how about that, God? Here's what one who knows God and whose mind is set on him and he thinks God's thoughts after him. He's going to say, where can I go from your spirit? Um, how about nowhere? You're never going to escape his spirit. To which I say, Hallel Yahweh, praise the Lord. Even in my worst of days, I don't escape his spirit. 
Or where will I flee from your presence? Where am I going to go, God? And aren't there days when you want to flee his presence? And if you're in your right mind and you're thinking theologically correctly, you're going to say, I can't escape his presence. And even when I'm living in sin or when I'm, when I'm just so lonely or when I'm so fearful, I'm glad I can't go anywhere and escape the presence of God. Verse 8, if I send to heaven, you're there. It's where you would think he would be, right? You go to heaven. If God's not there, it's not heaven. And what makes it heaven isn't pearly gates. What makes it heaven is God. The next part, if I make my bed in, and when I learned this in English, and one of the songs we sang, I think even, if I make my bed in hell, which doesn't mean eternal separation from God, the Hebrew word is sheol, and that... That's the great translation, escape. If you don't know how to translate it, just put the Hebrew word in there. And people will say, yeah, Sheol. Eh, I don't know what that means, but Sheol. And and what it probably means, and it has a number of, of semantic possibilities, but it probably means the grave. If I ascend to heaven, the highest, or if I come at the end to the grave, see what it says? If I make my bed in hell, you are there. You're omnipresent. <laughs> If I make my, we've had people this year, in this past year, that have died at College Park. And I was talking to Don, and it feels like every year there's more and more and more. And the fact is this, if you live long enough, you're going to die. Something like that. <clears throat> and you know what? There's a sense in which there's an incredible bite to death. And yet, here's what the scriptures say. God is not absent in death. The psalmist says it, David, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which I think you could say, Sheol, I'll fear no evil because I got a really good bank account. (laughs) It's obviously not because your health is good. Because I've got, you know, I've got a bunch of friends. Because I've got... A prestigious job. It's because you are with me and that's all that really matters. My mom died 12 years ago in June. And she was a member here at College Park. Some of you know her. And our auditorium was the old auditorium that some of you were there before this one. And we had the funeral service there. And my good friend, Eric Anderson, I don't know what service he goes to, but he's not a good friend, but he's a pretty good singer. And so he sang... My favorite funeral song, and it is, In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. And when I am alone, and when I am alone, and when I am alone, give me the omnipresent, everywhere present, omniscient God. Give me Jesus. And when I come to die, when I come to die, when I come to die, what do you want? Give me Jesus. You could take all this world, but don't take the omnipresent God away from me. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, if my friends and my loved ones, the prayer is for God, the almighty God, to be with them, which God offers that comfort to his people. His people know him. Verse 9 says, and if I take the wings of the morning, I don't know what the wings of the morning are. And I dwell in the uttermost part of the sea. Even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. 
as I wrestle with those verses, I'm not sure some of the commentators have different opinions, but what struck me in trying to interpret the nuance there in poetic form was that it may be something like the sun rises in the morning on a really good day, and you know what? There's nothing as invigorating as a sun rising, and then the sun inhabits the sky on a bright day for which we all pray, God, give us more of those kind of days. And then just last fall, Kathy and I were in San Diego at Mission Beach. Some of you have been there, and if you haven't, It's a cool place to go. And the sun was setting and it dominated the sky and it dominated not just the sky, it reflected off the water and it was just this awesome reality. And then that sun got swallowed up by the ocean. And the psalmist is saying, on those days, When you think you've taken the wings of the morning and you've been swallowed up in the sea and you wonder, God, where are you? See what he says? Even there, your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light will be to me as night on those days when you're in a hospital bed or you're grieving with this darkness that overwhelms you and you become depressed And you you, you say, it's so dark, life is so dark. And some of you have lived that world in a way that I haven't. And my heart goes out to you. And it seems dark beyond dark. Here's where your theology light clicks on, right? Verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to you, God. On your darkest day, it's not dark to God. And that's not just an easy pat statement. Oh, well, be warmed and filled. It's a theological statement that says God isn't like you. He's transcendent. He's the, the God who is omniscient and omni- and he's the one who comes to your aid in your darkest and most despairing time of life. And I've seen people at College Park in darkest despair of, of, of night be able to say, God, you're good, even when I don't understand what darkness means. The transcendent God. So, so what do we do with this? God, that's who you are. Here's one of the things we should do. As people of God, we shouldn't try to make God a little bit easier to understand. Life is dark. Life is hard. Let me see if I can figure God out a little bit better. Leave God where he is. And then say, God, minister grace to me. Would you come to me? Here's what we typically do. We typically want to run and hide from God. We typically want to get in our little boxes. And we want to say, I want to guard myself. I don't want people to know me. I'm going to put a barrier around me. Because if people really knew me. I mean, I, I, nice suit, huh? Just say yes, yeah, nice suit. Some think you shouldn't wear a suit because it's like I'm too distant from you. I want to be really right with you. And yet, isn't there a little facade? And the church should not be made up of people who attempt to hide from God or hide from each other because God knows you whether you think you're hiding from him or not. Again, my grandkids are good pictures of that. You know, they put a piece of paper in front of them and put it down and then I say, ah, oh, there they are. And I, are they, do they really think I'm that dumb? <laughs> really? I do the same thing with God. Where I put up my little facade. And then God says this to me, I've searched you, I know you, I'm everywhere present, nothing's escaped my attention. You can be secure, and you can be secure in me while you unveil your sin, and then God says in his grace, and I'm ever ready to forgive you for your sin. (laughs) 
<laughs> what an incredible God. That's the kind of God I find security in. I don't find security in a God who I meet up to all his standards. Because I don't. I find security in a God who knows I don't meet up to all his standards. And he's that sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God whose son does meet all those standards. And his son has given and imputed to me his righteousness so I can stand before an all-seeing God. And I say, thank you, God. My goal is not to make you less seen, it's to make you more seen and then to trust Jesus. Yeah, that, that application resonates with the people of God. So God's transcendent. We've got to go too quick through the rest of this. Point number two is the next six verses, verses 13 through 18, excuse me. And most of you are familiar with, I love these verses. Not only is God high and transcendent, but God is here. And the theological word is creator. And if you're one who is a Christian and doesn't believe in a creator God, then you I'm not even sure what to say after the then. And I know there's some debates within some of those arenas. The fact is this, God's the creator, and by virtue of him being the creator, he's not just the transcendent God up there. He's not just a creator who, like the clockmaker, he made it and said, let's see it go. He's a creator that wants to be intimately related to his creation. The beauty of God's creatorhood, the reason we can't deny God being a creator, is the creator loves what he created and watch how the psalmist picks this up. Man, is this stuff good. Verse 13, you formed my inward parts. God, you know my guts. I'm, I'm glad we have doctors. There's a doctor. I'm sure. Is there a doctor in the house? We have doctors in the house. Yeah, there you are. Some of you guys know guts. I know he knows Achilles tendons. I at least know that. I guess that's a gut kind of a thing. I don't know anything about it. Other than I know, I hope somebody that does know something knows what to do about it if it's a problem and... That one does, and I'm sure a lot of you others do. Here's the fact. Before Frank ever knew anything about Achilles tendons, God Almighty created the Achilles tendon, and he created all the other stuff that's your inward parts. Then I like this next. It's a parallel phrase. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So when you were in your mother's womb, and I've tried, I've tried to remember one second in my mother's womb. Can't remember. I, I know I was there. And I don't remember anything about the journey. And I guess I'm kind of glad it's over. <laughs> One of my kids, the doctor said, we think there may be two to our two. And they did, you know, what they do. And they said, ah, there's only one to which we said. <sighs> but you, you know what the ultrasound missed? There was someone in that uterus that was knitting together. A little person who's, who's now called Tammy. That's her name. And God knew you from the moment of your conception and didn't just know you. It isn't just like, okay, I know you. It's this knitting. It's, it's, uh, frankly, it's the feminine side of God and I'm a complementarian. And, and by the way, ladies, do you think that you don't represent the glory of God in your femininity? Can I say this? You do. And if there's ever been a time when our church has made it, or any church has made it sound like you don't, we're, we're wrong. That the beauty of God is seen in femininity, like this uterus where there's this knitting thing. Go, and I, there's probably guys that knit, and I praise God for you. I'm not one of them. <laughs> My goal in life is to never knit, ever. <laughs> you know, you have, you have bucket lists. There's certain things you want to do and certain things. I don't ever want to be caught dead doing that. 
I got to be careful because if you like to knit, that's great. There's nothing wrong with it. But I'm glad for a God who is transcendent and he's strong and he's powerful and he knows everything and he knows how to knit. (laughs) And for every one of us, that intimate reality of God, the knitter, Verse 14, he says, I'll praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, which what else do you think the knitting God would do? Would make something not so wonderful? Ah, that wasn't my best knitting job. (laughs) If you're not on the College Park blog and if you're not, if you're not reading the blog, at least occasionally, we've had several blogs that have talked about several young people in our church who, when, when you look at them, you might have the tendency to say they don't function exactly like all the other kids. And by the way, God doesn't determine value by function, does he? If he does, we're all in trouble. It isn't, hey, look at me, God. Here's what I can do. You need me. He doesn't need you. God's okay. He's okay. And when he, in his sovereign grace, knits together some of those little ones, and when they come out and you say... Wow, God, that's not the way I thought it would be, but I'm glad your thoughts are better than my thoughts. And praise God for a church that has young people like that. And we can say, God, we're all fearfully and wonderfully made. And don't look at yourself and say, I'm too tall. I'm not tall enough. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. you know, get off yourself. All right, get off yourself and start getting on to God. Because that's what theological thinking does. Fearfully, wonderful are your works. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, and that's poetic metaphor, not for the earth, but for, for the womb, even in those, those times when it just, you, and it, there must be something about being a mom, and again, I, it's not really on a bucket list, I'm never gonna be a mom, and that's really totally okay with me, and I'm so glad for moms, and even for those that wish they were moms, and God hasn't given that to you, and I pray God's grace for that to happen. I pray God gives you a baby, and, and I pray all those kind of things. But the fact is, God really is very much aware, not just aware, but he's involved in that most intricate part. And then look at verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. I don't know a better verse, not just to have a proof text, but a better evidence that this omniscient God who's omnipresent is very evident in the womb of all that are conceived. And the point of human life starts at conception before it was even formed. God's there, which makes me think that if I think like God thinks, I need to think counterculturally, Right? Because our culture doesn't seem to think that God's awareness and knitting of conceived, unformed little babies is sufficient to warrant them the reality of what it means to be an image bearer of God. The church says, no, we do. God cares about that little baby. A couple weeks ago, my daughter, Tammy, she has a name, and she called and we just talked And then, it was, you know how you have those conversations, you know that, that there's something else they really want to talk about, but we're talk, you know, just talking about, oh, the weather, and, and that's okay. At the end, she said, oh, by the way, I'm pregnant. Like, <laughs> really? So how, how did that happen? <laughs> Uh, I, di- I didn't ask that question. We did a good enough job. She's already had two, so she pretty much knows that whole thing. And so we're like... Um, 
Hey, it's, it's great being a grandparent, and, I, and it, I, it really is, because I don't have to worry about the nine months. I mean, I pray, and, you know, but and, and I, there's a lot of things. I, but for me, it's like another notch on my belt. This is number six. Six grandkids. They may, they may do, and I know a lot of you can do better than that. Um, so the next day, she calls, and she says, I need prayer. I've been bleeding. And again, I'm no doctor. Don't need to be a doctor to realize that's not good. She said she'd gone to the doctor and she was going to go back the next day and have further tests. She went back the next day and she called us. And she said, I miscarried. And I'm not trying to... I really, I even wondered whether to use this illustration because my intent isn't for you to feel sorry for me because you don't need to. Um, because many of you have suffered a whole lot more than I ever have. And I know that. I've seen your faces. I've heard your requests. And, and there's something even a blessing about it, having been so early and all that kind of stuff. But then she asked me this question. You know, when you, when you kind of like are the pastor and the theologian with a small T that I really wish I could give that title sometimes to somebody else. And she said, so dad, so dad, was that, was that a person? Could we have named that person? And... And I said, I said, you know what, Tam? I'm just studying the 139th Psalm. And I look in verse 16 and it says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And that baby was an image bearer of God, not by virtue of function. I mean, not as though the baby could do backflips or anything else, but by virtue of creation, because God endued that baby with, and, and frankly, I think God has a name, and I don't know what that even looks like for that baby, and I say, thank you, God. And I told her, and she found great consolation in the reality of the fact that God not only knows, but he's the creator, and his hands are wonderful hands for that little baby to be in. And it doesn't stop us from being sorrowful. It doesn't stop our hearts from breaking. And yet it says, I know God. And God knows what he's doing. And I would rather be in his hands than anybody else's hands. Wouldn't you? Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts. Oh God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you, that witness of God, the Hebrew name Emmanuel, God with us. The highness of God, the hearness of God is what the redeemed of God have always loved. And I'm more interested in where God is than where I am. And I'm more interested in what he knows than what I know. Because God's the one that should be lifted up. I, you know, I tend to do illustrations. This was a piece of cake. So... I went to Hobby Lobby, my favorite store, my wife's favorite store, somebody's favorite store. It's not even her favorite store, but somebody's favorite store. And I went in there and I said, I want sand. So and they told me to hold it up. So there it is. And, and, and I'm looking on it and I want to find out how many grains of sand are in here because I don't want them to rip me off. <clears throat> It's like, I'm not sure. Tell me how many... And then, so they give me a pound and a half. And I think, I don't even believe that it's really a pound and a half. But I want to know how many pieces of sand are in this container. So I open it up and I think, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to count them. <laughs> so I pick them up. And they start going down. And actually, then I said, there's some left on my finger. You can't necessarily see it, but you can come up afterward. So I started counting them on my finger. And I'm like, I can't even figure out where the first one is. 
So I thought, all right, I'll mark everyone that I've counted. I can't even find one to mark. And then I read that verse and I say, I can't believe that God's thoughts towards me are more than the sand. And you take that sand and dump it on the ocean beach and you don't even know you dumped it. God's thoughts are like that to me, which then makes me ask the question, what are, what are my thoughts about him? So God, yesterday you were thinking about me. I can't even count it. I don't have too much trouble counting how many times I thought about God yesterday. How many times I brought my life into his thinking process because I get so caught up in the cares of this world. So God's high. And he's here. And I love him for that. He's transcendent. And he's so intimately involved with us as his people. Then the third part of the psalm is the part that many of us would like to chop out of the psalm. Because it's not as pretty. And the third H is that he's holy. He's high. He's here. And he's holy. And you don't want a God that's not holy. You don't want a God that's just like this grandfatherly God who knows everything, is everywhere, and he's just like a nice God. He thinks about you all the time because the fact is God is holy, holy, holy. Thrice holy from a Hebrew perspective means he's holy beyond belief. And the way the psalmist describes that is by describing the negative of holy. And he talks about what the tendency of our broken sinful hearts is. And here's how he says it. Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Slay the wicked? Come on, David. What have you been talking about? Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, oh Lord? Ah, Christian verbiage at its best. (laughs) You, You know, this is the right way to read that, and that is to say, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, you and I are the wicked who deserve to be destroyed by a holy God. The way you ought to read that is to say, if it weren't Jesus who took my death... When it says that you would slay the wicked. You know who got slayed for the wicked? Who got slain for the wicked? His name is Jesus Christ. And if he weren't slain for you and me and for our sins, we would be the object of the imprecatory psalm that would say, Slay me, God, because I deserve it. You're holy, I'm not. And then look at look at verse 21. Do I hate those who hate you? Do not rise up against... Or do not loathe those who rise up. I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And I am one who claims Christ's death in place of my death. And I ask myself the question, so do I hate what God hates? And I ask you that question. That high and here God is also holy. Do you hate what the holy God hates and the people of God who glory in his transcendence also glory in his holiness? And then we want to say this. We need to be holy like he's holy. We need to hate what he hates. 
And there's times I love the things that he hates. And I scratch myself or my head and I say, God, how can I love what you hate? How? This takes me to the conclusion of the psalm. Verse 23. Which, by the way, if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your sin bearer, you're going to bear this, your own sin. And the gospel really, in a kind of a unique way in this psalm, comes out in the slay the wicked, O God. He did. He slayed the wicked in Jesus. <laughs> and if you would trust in Jesus, you can escape the wrath. That's the way Carson says it. Wrath of God. You can escape that wrath, which is the inevitable outcome of the holy God towards someone who hasn't found their life in Christ. And I beg you to come to Christ today and know the beauty and the glory of that God. And for those of us that are God's people, here's what I beg you. And I've been, I've been meditating on this psalm and it hurts and yet it feels so good. There's six imperatives in these last two verses. The first one is this, search me, O God. The second one is know my heart. The third one is try me. The fourth one is know my thoughts. There's a parallel there between my thoughts and God's thoughts. And I'm asking God to know my thoughts so that my thoughts can be conformed to his thoughts. I want to think God's thoughts after him. <laughs> you, think, you think about that? Every day of your life, think God's thoughts after him. He thinks about you like the sand of the sea. Get your sand quotient up of how you think about God. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The people of God glory in the glory of God and then our prayer on a daily basis is God Almighty search me and know me because I want to know you who to know right is life eternal let me close with this illustration this one's just it just really struck me a couple weeks ago when I was reading it C.S. Lewis so I get two Brits in the sermon C.S. Lewis wrote a book The Voyage of the Dawn Treader and some of you saw the movie and few of you probably read the book. There's a guy in there. His name is Eustace. Remember him? He's that little precocious kid that just drives you nuts. And you know kids like him. You know, they're just, everything's about them. It's about me. It's about me, 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 me. And you just want to be, well, you remember in the story, there's an island he goes to and he becomes a dragon. And the dragon picture actually has metaphor in the Bible. Dragon is not a good thing. And dragon is something that has like this crusty outward facade of hiddenness and then breathes fire to keep people away and flies to escape. And he's a dragon, and at first it feels really good. I'm my own person. I'm a dragon. And then at the end he gets tired of being a dragon. Remember that? And he lays down on a beach, and it almost looks like this dragon is about to die. And then the picture is is so cool in fiction form where Aslan, the Christ figure, comes walking on the beach up to this dragon that's tired of being a dragon. And here's what Aslan says. You'll have to let me undress you. Here's what Eustace says. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you. But I was nearly desperate now, so I just lay back down on my back, or I lay down on my back to let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began peeling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there it was lying on the grass, and there I was. 
smooth and soft as a peeled switch. That's British. And smaller than I had been, not quite as cool as I thought I was, I had turned into a boy again. I turned into what God made me to be. And see, here's the challenge of life for me. I have my dragon-esque appearance, and maybe it doesn't appear that way because I'm better at putting on a facade than the dragon. And I want to be distant from God. I want to be distant from people. And here's the prayer of the redeemed, and that is, God, search me. And search me isn't just some sort of a peripheral, let me just make a quick analysis. It's take the very reality of your being and tear me apart so that I'm totally exposed before you. So that I can experience the beauty of walking in that eternal life. So here's what we need. We need a group of people that say God is so holy and we love him so much that we want him to search us, every deep little part of us, expose our sin to us so that we, the people of God, can be made alive by the Spirit of God. And we can experience that joy that comes from now. I'm alive again. And I can live for Christ because he searched me and known me. Would you bow your heads? I'd like to ask the, some of our soul care and our, our elders to come forward. and We're here to pray for you if God... If there's a need and you'd like somebody to pray for you. And I, I, I'm going to give you like about 20 seconds. And would you pray this prayer that God would search you and know you. And that he would come into the deepest recesses of who you are. And if you're one of his people that he's going to expose sin, if you're not his, that you'll say, Jesus, I need you because what I find and what you're going to find when you search me is not good. For those of us that are believers, don't allow that little corner of your life to be outside of the gaze of God because the fact is it isn't. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We delight in your glory, omniscient, omnipresent, creator God. And then we bow before you, the holy God, and we don't want you to be anything less than holy. And Lord, my prayer for myself and for this church that you've let us be partakers together in is that we would pray today, search me, O God. Know my thoughts, try me. And know my ways and see if there's any wicked way in us. And then, Lord God, lead us individually and as a community in the way of righteousness. May we think your thoughts after you. And may we do it for your glory. And I pray that in Christ's name.